Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're going to be discussing some of the TV that we watched during 2022 and maybe recommending some of it to you. Once again, we're firing up our television sets and talking about some of the programmes we've been watching recently. Although at least two of us I can think of didn't uh, fire up the TVs, we fired up our computers and streaming. <laughs> well, I fired up my TV, but uh, then I did catch up on one on uh, on the phone as well. I genuinely can't remember the last time I switched my television set on. It must be at least five or six years. I very rarely watch stuff on terrestrial TV these days. That I did think I turned it over to there about a month or two ago to watch what seemed like endless repeats of Law and Order on uh, 5 USA. <laughs> only to find that I got a week later into it and went, hang on a minute, they're just showing the same episodes they played last week and then went straight back to YouTube. <laughs> I still watch at least as much television in terms of television content as I ever did, but streaming services have just changed everything. I find it much more convenient to watch it on my computer, but that's because I'm not watching them with anyone else. I have a very old television set and my computer monitor is probably... Almost as large as it, and definitely a lot better quality. The day I get a laptop that's as big as my TV, <laughs> I mean, it's not going to fit in your lap. And also, hasn't got a massive rail subwoofer and uh, big speakers. So, yes, I just have headphones. Those do the job. Yeah, but they don't shake the walls. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm sure my neighbours have got enough reasons to hate me already. I don't really need to add to the list. Okay, well, I'm going to kick things off and talk about Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, or at least the episodes that I've seen, which, mm -hmm. no surprise here, the ones with HPL associated <laughs> with the episodes. Now, I'm kind of aware that often I've chosen shows that aren't even horror at all. Obviously, don't write it's role-playing games, but they don't even relate to horror. So I thought this time I should probably choose something that, that does relate to horror. And obviously... Guillermo del Toro is a great director and has worked in the horror genre numerous times. And there's a lovely little bit at the start of each show, which I, I really enjoy. I really enjoy mm. sort of forwards or sort of introductions to things, whether it be in a collection of sort stories where somebody comments on the story and gives you a little bit of background about it, or on a TV show where it's kind of curated, if you like. And he kind of comes over in his, his nice suit and he, there is an actual cabinet of curiosities which he opens curious little doors and takes something out and tells you, you know, it does not draw out, but just tells you, you know, who the director is and a little seed about the story. And then he puts the, the little thing down on the table and you go into the credits. So the first one I watched was Pickman's Model because that's always been a favourite and that was the first Lovecraft story I ever read. This uh, TV adaptation has definitely got more tits than... <laughs> Lovecraft story that, that I remember. I don't don't remember that. And, you know, when, when I say that, it's like the opening scene. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. So it's Thurber, who is an artist, and he's drawing uh, his girlfriend as, as a model. And there's a lot of setup that we don't really get in the story. There's much more of a love story with Thurber. 
the narrator of Pickman's model. And there's a lot of stuff in this that is in Pickman's model. And there's a lot of stuff that isn't. Much more of the latter. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but I thought it was some interesting stuff. So the character of Pickman is an interesting character. And we see his paintings. There's a bit of um, CGI to kind of bring some of his paintings to life. And, and, you know, you kind of get the sense that the viewer, Thurber, is seeing these paintings and seeing them kind of writhe around. Because you often get this thing in Call of Cthulhu in the game that, oh, there's a sound loss of seeing a painting. You know, but why? Well, here we kind of see why. And also we see it manifested really well with Thurber that even after like the first viewing, he starts hearing things and he starts it's almost like he's seeing into another world now and he's seeing other things and he's some of it is almost like he's seeing into another world and some of it is clearly perhaps delusions he's at a garden party with his girlfriend he arrives kind of late and he's in a bad state really uh, both mentally and, and physically and i think she introduces him to her father yeah and he sees this strange woman sort of phantom over over the father's shoulder and he's like in shock and he, he doesn't know if it's real or, or or what and he kind of runs away and i thought that was a good use of delusions that we could kind of use in the game there's there's a few good uses of that as we said it does deviate from the story and i don't really have a problem with deviating from the story hmm. only the reveal at the end of pickman's model is that it was a painting from life there was a photograph hmm. that pickman's got of the of the monsters but here we kind of see the monsters earlier. Hmm. But I'm wondering, are we supposed to perhaps think that they're just in Thurber's mind? That would be a way of explaining that. But if he is actually seeing them, then maybe we don't need that reveal at the end. The thing I could have done without was the whole father-son thing and um, the fact that for some people, when they see the paintings, it drives them mad and makes them cook their relatives and eat them. That just seemed a bit weird. <laughs> Well, and also that big reveal at the end, that final scene with uh, the oven. I can't remember where it was. There was a story or a film that I either read or saw within the last year or two that had exactly the same ending. Right. I really wish I could remember what it was, but it bugged me. And I wasn't very well disposed towards the episode anyway, because I thought I love the idea of expanding Pigment's model, but I thought they did it in a really lazy, haphazard way. And that ending just felt so, for a start, derivative and also out of nowhere. It, not out of nowhere narratively, but it just didn't fit tonally with the rest of the thing. And I, I don't know, the whole thing felt like a mess to me. The thing the ending kind of reminded me of was a Serbian film. Hmm. We won't go into that, but that's what it reminded me of. Yeah. And then I watched Dreams in the Witch House. The adaptation in nearly just name only. <laughs> oh, I don't know. No, again, I mean, I think it's it's a bit like Pickman's model, you know, in the... In, the, in that it's shit. <laughs> oh, I didn't think it was that bad. I, I quite enjoyed it. I thought the boy-girl thing at the start, there's a boy and a girl, and this just a sort of a setup to show that the, the girl dies. And then, much as with Pickman's Waller, we kind of jump forward a number of years. Mm. And there's Ron Weasley <laughs> sat watching a, a spiritualist performance. And that's not the end of the comparisons, because um, obviously he teams, well, he doesn't team up, but he is going to meet a rat, a rat with a human face. <laughs> it's not called Scabbers, though. 
<laughs> no, exactly. It's not Peter Pettigrew from uh, Prisoner of Azkaban. But it just kind of amused me, that link there, that Scabbers and Brown Jenkin could be related in some way. I don't know. That'd be weird. So this character, Ron Weasley's character, whose name I've forgotten, I'll just call him Ron Weasley, he goes into like the other world and he, he's trying to get his sister back. You know, there's this whole thing of, of dreams in the witch house. In his perhaps dreams, to get these dreams, he meets this dodgy fella in a bar who gives him some liquid gold to drink. Mm. You know, I'm not sure that's a good decision. <laughs> yeah, it's all meant to be very shamanic. Yes. And he, he goes into the, the other world. But of course, the witch, the witch follows him in. And the witch, I thought was fantastic. She's got sort of headpiece that's sort of an extension of her skull, perhaps, or some sort of hat. But it's like it's got like glowing embers inside it and it sort of lets off sparks. And I thought that was visually uh, really clever. I thought that was really good. And Brown Jenkin, you know, he was pretty cool. That was a pretty cool character. What was the other one that we talked about, the previous version of this? The Stuart Gordon one from um, Masters of Horror. Yes, yeah. Which I think was a better adaptation. Overall, I'd agree. Yeah, I mean, they certainly cleave closer to the source material, which if you're deviating from the source material more than Stuart Gordon did. Again, I mean, my problem with Dreams in the Witch House wasn't that it deviated from the source material. I'm very happy with free adaptations. I, I just... I don't know, I couldn't find anything in it to care about. I mean, much like Pigman's model, I found I thought, yeah, it was visually interesting and I mean that just about kept me going. But the story itself just made me want to I don't know, chew my own limbs off or something. <laughs> I mean it was it was just oh anyway. You're describing much of the same reaction I had to uh, episode four of the season, uh, the outside, not one of the Lovecraft stories, but by God that was an hour of my life I won't fucking get back. I, I absolutely <laughs> hated that visual piece of excrement. That was terrible. Well, the one that did stand out, I've only watched three of them, so I've got the other ones to look forward to. But the other one I had recommended to me was Autopsy, mm -hmm. based mm -hmm. on a short story by Michael Shea. Who we'll be talking about next episode. Indeed. And in this one, I think it's maybe set in the 80s, I want to say. There's been a mining accident, accident in inverted commas, we're not quite sure. Well, we kind of see it, but the authorities aren't quite really sure what's happened and they're looking into it. So they've got a coroner looking at the bodies and there's some great coroner scene stuff going on in there. And, you know, he's doing it all on his own. He's This one, yeah, it's quite gruesome, mm. quite visceral, uh, literally. And we see this one figure that we we saw earlier and we know is, is kind of the, the bad dude. And we see him laying on the on the trolley, the gurney or whatever, and, and we see his hand several times. And we know at some point his hand is going to move. <laughs> sure enough, it does at, at some point, and he kind of comes back to life. But the it really came to life, I thought, as a sort of episode and a, and a story in that exchange between the, the coroner, who's now kind of held captive by mm. this, you know, zombified thing that's growing inside him. And their, their exchange of, of dialogue, I thought, was great. Mm, oh, God, yeah. All, all the things they have to say between each other and this um, this kind of alien entity that's possessing what is now a, a, a kind of a, a zombie. And I don't think I'm going to spoil this one for viewers. I mean, that's, that is a, a spoiler. But how it resolves mm. and what the coroner does, I thought, was, was absolutely fantastic. It was really captivating. And again, it's gruesome, but it's it all makes sense within the story and was very affecting, I thought. It was uh, really well done. 
Yes, by far yeah. my favourite of the whole series was the autopsy by a by quite a margin. Mm, same here. It's based on one of my favourite short stories for a start, which it was always going to predispose me to liking it, but it adapted it well. It's, again, a very free adaptation. It doesn't cleave to the original story that well. The, the original story is just the autopsy, but the adaptation adds a whole load of additional background and additional scenes to it that give it more context, and I think that works for a television adaptation. What have you been watching, Scott? Our listeners on our Discord server made some recommendations, and one that a few of them had said that they wanted to hear us talk about in an episode at some stage, and I figured this was as good an opportunity as ever, was Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Have either of you ever watched this? I would have thought it's the kind of thing that you would have seen, Paul, but maybe not. Is it, um, oh, what's his, what's the actor's name? It stars Matthew Holness, Richard Iowadi, Matt Berry, and Alice Lowe. Yeah, Matt Berry was who I was thinking of, yeah. So this is a television show from 2004. And I, mean, I was thinking about this because it is a parody of 1980s television. And it's now long enough after it first came out that it's about the same age relative to now as the programs it was parodying in 2004 when it came out. But this is sadly a fairly short-lived little program that Channel 4 put out and was based on a couple of Edinburgh Fringe shows that really kick-started the careers of particularly, I think, Richard Iowadi and Alice Lowe. Despite the fact that Matthew Holness plays the lead in it, he plays Garth Marenghi, and we'll get to what that actually means in a moment. I'd say out of all the people involved with it, he's probably the least known. Iowadi obviously has had quite a spectacular career since then. Alice Lowe, She's done some really interesting stuff over the years, particularly acting, but as a writer and director as well, and I'll mention a few of those later on. Matt Berry wasn't part of the original cast. He wasn't one of the creators of the whole thing. They brought him on board for the TV series. He's obviously gone on and become huge since then as well. I mean, it wasn't the first thing that all of them did, but I think it was the first major thing. So the basic conceit is that you have this horror writer, Garth Marenghi, who is, I think in the original Edinburgh Fringe shows, which sadly I never saw, apparently, initially I think they did him as a bit of a riff on Stephen King, but he turned into something else very quickly. And it's quite uncanny. If you ever watch an interview with Sean Hudson, the mannerisms, uh, the style of speech, everything that... Matthew Holness does. It is almost exactly Sean Hudson. So Sean Hudson, if you haven't encountered him, is a legendary, notorious, I don't know what the word would be, British horror writer who has been producing pulp horrors since the 1980s. I think he started out as a roadie for Iron Maiden. And the story I heard is that one day he read a Guy and Smith book and thought, I can do better. And whether or not he has is arguable. 
but he's produced countless horror novels since then, generally very gory ones, very pulpy ones, mass market paperbacks. And I think he's an inspiration for Garth Marenghien. I think they also very much draw on people like Guy and Smith and James Herbert and so on. And he is very much the archetypal British pulp horror writer of the 80s. The premise of the TV program is that Marenghi had decided in the 1980s that he had taken the horror novel as a medium as far as it could be taken. And so he needed to branch out somewhere else. So he and his publisher, Dean Lerner, who's played by Richard Ayawadi, approached Channel 4 and made this TV program called Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. And it got enmeshed in controversy and never got broadcast, except apparently for a limited run on Peruvian television. But it was never broadcast in the UK. So the way it's presented is a kind of a combination of the TV program itself, plus little interview snippets and introductions and so on, as if this is a retrospective going back and you've got wholeness as Garth Marenghi introducing each episode and talking about the influences and uh, where it all came from. And then you've got cuts to the different actors talking about their experiences of, of making the program. And as a format, it, it really works. One of the things that I think sets this apart from a lot of the horror comedies we've talked about is that horror comedy generally means that you've got something that is trying to be both horror and comedy at the same time. And Garth Marenghi's Dark Place isn't that. There's no attempt to actually do horror in it. It is a comedy about a horror writer, a very mm. up his own ass pretentious horror writer. It's a comedy about an absolutely terrible TV series that he made. But none of the elements in it are anything other than campy. And, I mean, that's fine. It is a funny program. I just don't go into this expecting it to be, I don't know, The Evil Dead 2 or or even Tucker and Dale versus Evil. It's not that. It's something else. But uh, at least a couple of the creators from there have gone on to do, I guess, what you could arguably call, in some cases, and definitely call in others, horror. So Matthew Holness, for example, a few years back, wrote and directed a horror film, a psychological horror film, called Possum, came out in 2018, which, yeah, is a really dark, grim, depressing film. Quite surreal, and, yeah, very grubby and uncomfortable. I, I liked it, but I'm not sure I'd describe it as an enjoyable film. And I think when Holness was doing the press for that, he ended up having to... Because people saw him and saw Garth Marenghi. Not that he appears in the film, but I think he spent an awful lot of time having to explain, no, this is nothing like that, this, this is actual horror. But Alice Lowe, she went on and she co-wrote Sightseers with Steve Oram, which was directed by Ben Wheatley, which is certainly got horror elements in it, but it's more black comedy, but quite a violent, gruesome, dark black comedy, which I thoroughly recommend but then she she wrote and directed a horror film a few years back which i loved a film called prevenge in which she's playing a pregnant woman who is 
in psychic contact with her unborn baby who is psychically influencing her and convincing her to kill some of the people who've wronged her. And it's, again, got comedy elements, but it's a, a surprisingly dark film. And of course, Matt Berry went on to the TV version of What We Do in the Shadows. So I, I guess really it's only Richard Ayoade who's not gone back to horror in any form. Mm. But as far as the program within the program is concerned, the supposed Garth Marenghi's Dark Place from the 1980s, this is an episodic TV program that is set in a hospital in Romford in the 1980s. At some point in the past, Dr. Rick Daglis, the star of the show, who is played by Garth Marenghi, who in turn is played by Matthew Holness, because you've got actors playing actors playing characters, and Douglas, at some point, being a dabbler in the occult, had, with a colleague at the the hospital, opened up a gateway to hell and got a bit distracted before closing it properly. And so, as a result, weird shit keeps happening at the hospital. And I did find myself wondering whether this was influenced at all by Lars von Trier's uh, Kingdom, which was the basis for the kingdom hospital which stephen king did for american tv which was fucking awful but the original danish tv series was really weird but considering that that was a sort of a black comedy anyway it'd be kind of a weird choice to parody it but yeah i can certainly see similarities between them each one of the central characters in it is played by one of the creators well plus matt berry who as i said they're playing actors or people involved with the production who in turn are playing characters within the tv program so you've got as i mentioned matthew holness playing garth Marenghi, playing dr rick daglis you've got rich dioadi playing dean lerner as i mentioned who is garth Marenghi's publisher who in turn is playing thornton reed the administrator of the hospital and there's this whole thing in there about how dean lerner is not an actor and they really lead into this in that every scene that he's in, he's missing his cues, he's staring into the camera, he's either delivering his lines completely without affect or overemphasizing all the wrong things. It's absolutely great. <laughs> so, an excerpt from an interview with Richard Iowadi where I think somewhat impishly he was claiming that the reason they decided to do this was because he's such a terrible actor himself that it sort of covered up for his mistakes then you've got matt berry playing todd rivers the actor who in turn is playing dr lucian uh, sanchez who's a surgeon and douglas's best friend and all three of these these male leads all come from military backgrounds if I remember correctly, both Lucien Sanchez and Rick Douglas were supposed to have served together in Vietnam. And what this means is that they spend the entire series carrying guns around in the hospital. And anytime there's anything weird going on or a patient is, is acting in a sinister manner, out come the guns. In the first episode, for example, the character who Douglas open this gate to hell with is a patient within the hospital he never quite recovered from the uh, from the experience and so Marenghi goes to visit him and as he walks into the room the man just explodes he cuts to Garth Marenghi in an interview afterwards saying I have never exploded but I know what it would be like don't ask me how I just know 
I've always just known. But then we have the funeral, where the body comes back to life in the, the coffin, somehow reassembled, and comes out and bursts out of the grave. And in front of all the mourners, all the lead characters just pull out their guns and for about 30 seconds in slow motion just fill the body full of bullets. It is just that kind of thing. I was thinking when you started talking about this, this was uh, there have been multiple series of it and it was no. something that was going on, but it's something back from 2006, is it, or something like that? 2004. 2004. So quite a long time ago, I remember watching like an episode of it, I think probably the first episode. And I just sort of remember it didn't really grab me, but yeah, maybe I should give it another go. Because I'm a big fan of like Matt Berry and... All those guys were in um, The Mighty Boosh, uh, Matthew mm. Holness and yeah, um, yeah. Richard Awadi. Yeah, yeah. I think Alice Lowe was in there as well, wasn't she? Possibly so, yes. I'm kind of glad that you decided to talk about this rather than uh, rather taking the bullet for me, because this does not sound like something I'd want to watch. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is that every aspect of it is weird, because they've gone out of their way to make the production look just wrong. For a start, I mean, all the sets are cheap, all the exterior locations are very obviously models, the acting is very rough, all the special effects are deliberately rough, but it's it's down to the editing and the music choices as well and the performances. One of the running gags in there is that every line that's delivered by Matt Berry's character is overdubbed, like they screwed up the recording at the time. And so they've had to dub it, and the dubbing just sounds wrong each time. It's like an octave too low, and it never quite syncs up, and obviously the, the background sounds are all different. It's all full of all that, but obviously the writing of each episode reflects the particular... Garth Marenghi aesthetic, which is just lurid pulp horror dialed up to 11, but delivered really badly. Each episode starts off with Marenghi reading a little bit from one of his books, and the prose is just excruciating for a start. But it, it then goes, in every episode, I'm just every line of dialogue, everything in it is just like I say, wrong. But then you've got the overall premises of the episode. So, for example, the final episode is a sort of Lovecraftian horror piece where there is this mysterious green fog that settles on Dark Place Hospital and comes through the ventilation system. And there is a patient who is sitting underneath the, the air vent and it breathes in a bunch of this gas. And so... The gas is filled with alien cosmic spores, which represents the true horrific origins of broccoli. And so she begins transforming into broccoli. Dr. Sanchez falls in love with her, despite the fact that she's turning green and her fingers are all turning into florets of broccoli and so on, and discovers that broccoli is sexually transmitted. And you've got all these little cutaways to Garth Marenghi explaining the writing of this and talking about how this was his brave take on trying to come up with a way of explaining the AIDS crisis in the 1980s because you know no one else was brave enough to put it in these terms. And I don't know, just the layers of irony in that just absolutely work for me. 
I was thinking for a moment it was going to be a James Herbert parody when you said about glowing fog. Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> there are a couple that involve fog as well. There's another one called Scotch Mist where it's more of a parody of the uh, John Carpenter, The Fog, mm -hmm. rather than the James Herbert one, in that it's got these ghosts of these irate Highlanders who have come down to take revenge upon Garth Marenghi for his slights against the Scottish people. Again, it's, it's absolutely lovely. The message is Garth Marenghi keeps reminding us is that we shouldn't be racist towards the Scots, or the Scotch, as he keeps calling them in the episode. <laughs> Sadly, it only lasted one series. There were six episodes, you know, each of which is about 25 minutes long. I think there were plans to make a second series, but it didn't get the viewing numbers at the time, and Channel 4 declined to renew it. There have been fan campaigns since then to try to get it continued, but I think at this stage, 18 years on, that's probably not going to happen. The good news is that in the last couple of months, Matthew Holness has revived the character of Garth Marenghi in a different medium. And he put out in, uh, I think, the end of October, start of November, Garth Marenghi's Terror Tome, which is uh, a collection of three novellas in book form, and there's an audiobook which he reads as well as Garth Marenghi. It's a series of these these three interlinked stories about uh, the horror author Nick Steen and this Faustian pact that he's developed with a, a sinister demonic typewriter that uh, he is in this really uncomfortable sadomasochistic sexual relationship with, but it keeps producing these, these massive horror books that seem to be made up entirely out of punctuation and drive people mad. I've only read the first story so far, and it's really quite a lot of fun. And it definitely has the same kind of tone as the TV program. Just to cap it all off, there, there was an interview that Holness did in the character of Garth Marenghi with The Guardian to promote Teratome. I think this sums it up nicely. The interviewer said, Many other writers and comedians psych Dark Place as a massive influence on their work. Marenghi, yes and I will be suing them all. <laughs> You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Listen to donations, keep this show running, and every penny helps. If you'd like to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias. Thank you. Matt, what have you been watching? Definitely nothing as light-hearted and horrific as that. I said very, very glad that Scott took the bullet on that because I probably would have been beating my head against the wall the way he's describing that show. Yeah, it doesn't sound like your sort of thing. Uh, hell no. I was really stuck thinking about this one because there are a few barriers to entry for me that I'm kind of glad I got over, but I'm also it makes me a little bit reluctant about talking about the series in much detail. So I'm going to try and talk around it as possible because... I think this particular series works best if you go into it knowing almost nothing. Ah, oh, so no spoilers. Yeah, I'm going to try to be very careful about certain aspects I talk about with this. The series in question is Midnight Mass. Oh, yes. Done by Mike Flanagan, of the same fame as Hush and Gerald's Game, also on Netflix in the latter instance. The certain motifs and elements that, particularly from Gerald's Game, I haven't, I haven't seen Hush, that carry across into this, that there are some very visceral moments in this series. And particularly if you're like me, you'll, you will find one particular scene very, very upsetting. 
big content warning there is graphic depiction of animal harm in this i mean really upsetting stuff the premise of the show is that again trying to be as broadly stroking as possible you have riley flynn who's played by zach guilford who's a former venture capitalist you find him sat on the side of the road evidently after having been some kind of accident there's plenty of flashing police lights going around the scene so it's dark but you've got this red and blue glow over everything as he sat there being tended to by emts and a police officer as he's just been involved in a drunk driving incident where he's the one that's been drunk behind the wheel and he's just killed a young girl or a young woman anyway she's not she's not a girl she's not that young but there's a wonderful line about He's wondering how this could happen and so on, and that how or why God spared him. And he's almost asked by the police officer, Well, while you're talking with God, tell him why he lets dicks like you live and girls like that die. This moment really is it's a hard hitting scene to open the show mm. with mm. and really establishes his character. Because of that, it's later on is a bit of a rug pulling out from underneath you. Because I was expecting him to be the main character. That's the closest I'll get to a spoiler. He is not the main character of this show. so But he's just the way to get you into the setting. Hmm. Ah. He's then portrayed as going, he's been sentenced, and he goes to prison. Every night when he lays down in his cell, he sees, not a ghost, that's, that's a bit too literal a term for it, but he sees this face of the girl he killed, silhouetted or f- flashed up in the red and blue lights, glaring at him every night. It's his guilt basically manifesting. And he mm. can't escape it. Every night this happens to him. If that was happening to me, I'd, I'd be pretty much driven insane the way it's depicted in the show. Four years of that pass, he's released on probation. So he still has to check in with his parole officer. And he's sent home to this lovely little isolated hometown off the coast of New England called Crockett Island. This reeks of a Stephen King type of uh, location. <laughs> It evoked mm. quite a lot of the feelings I got from Storm of the Century, the teleplay that King mm. did in the, well, the early, I think it was back in the early 2000s or late 90s. It was it was a fair while ago. I think it was 90s, yeah. It evoked that kind of setting, very small, tight-knit community with plenty of personalities ready to butt heads against each other for various reasons. And he goes home to basically live with his parents and go back to the life that you really got the impression that he had fought to escape from and got to the big city and become his own person, become the big rich fella that he is. And now he is back to square one. There's echoes of his situation in a couple of the other characters, namely Erin Green, played by Kate Siegel, who's also coincidentally Riley's childhood sweetheart. She's now the school teacher at the island and is also expecting a child. She's quite a sympathetic character. You kind of get to like her from the outset because she gets on quite well with what is presented as the main character. And yet you've got some people that like him, some people that don't like him. I think one of the main things, one of the main strengths of this show is that the characterization is really wonderful and acted perfectly. Mm-hmm. You've got, I'll call her the central villain, but she is the character that you absolutely love to hate. And um, boy, the, the actress involved um, here, I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation. It's Samantha Sloyan, plays Bev Keen. She is every archetypal religious nut job, absolute crazy woman with a mean streak a mile wide. 
she is so petty and vicious and horrible. It only ramps up as the series goes through as she gets exposed mm. to what's going on in, in the background and finally embraces it wholeheartedly and becomes the, the full outright villain. She's very much like Mrs. Carmody from The Mist, mm. only more so. Yeah, that is a perfect parallel for her. So how many episodes in are we when he comes out of prison and goes back to this place? Is that like all in episode one? Is that all set up? Or? It's the first 15 minutes of episode one. Oh, right. So that's, that's pretty rapid. It's a really quick setup. And how many episodes is it like 10 episode season or? Seven. It is really quick. I don't know the show at all. So is it just like one season out? Is it made this year or? It was made last year, so 2021. Hmm. It was primarily the one season. I've kind of heard conflicting things, maybe that there is going to be a second season coming. I doubt very much there will be because Mike Flanagan no longer has a contract with Netflix. He's gone over to Amazon Prime now um, and he's doing an adaptation of The Gunslinger for them now. Oh, yes. I, I, yeah. If there was any hope of this, I think that's gone now. But it's so self-contained. I don't see that they, they should have continued it. I was going to say something very similar to that, that the very last scene and to some extent some of the bits in the scenes laying the groundwork for that final closing shot imply that there could be a story but i don't think it should be made because i think it should be left on the note that it ends on because it's such a perfect a perfect ending for the show i think doing a continuation of it would just dilute it oh nice so it's seven episodes and kind of wraps up mm -hmm. it obviously potentially could be picked up again but you know it kind of wraps the story up yeah it has one single loose thread but when you think of the logistics mm. of what's happening and what's involved in that scene again trying to dart around specifics yeah you keep thinking no actually it's they don't need to worry it's not going to happen no 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 way <laughs> but yeah you've got these characters say that on this island that have very strong views like you're a bible wielding bev who's the say described on the wikipedia page as zealous and overbearing and influential member of the church and that really is underselling her uh, stamp that she puts on the community there's bits of her that also remind me in a bizarre way of the school teacher in the wicker man hmm. that she's very much about trying to get religion into the school system hmm. and this puts her at odds particularly with the local sheriff sheriff hassan played by and again i'm probably gonna butcher the pronunciation Raoul Coley, better known to me as the doctor or the fellow morgue attendant in iZombie, the human one at least. <laughs> he was also in Flanagan's adaptation of The Turn of the Screw, uh, The Haunting of Bly Manor. Which I haven't seen. I lasted two episodes, it's awful. I don't like Turn of the Screw in the first place, so I sure as hell wasn't going to sit down and watch another adaptation of it. It's about as close to The Turn of the Screw as his adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House was to Shirley Jackson's novel. I'm still not going to put myself through that. But anyway, Hassan is the only Muslim, or no, besides him and his son, they're the only two Muslims on the island. So you've got a culture clash against this very Catholic background, and these two uh, very outsider characters having moved there. There's a lovely little monologue he gives later in the series about his previous history back in New York City in the, the wake of 9-11, what happened to him there and how he ends up on the island and having taken this job and tried to integrate himself into the community. But certain personalities just won't let that happen. You've also got Lisa Scarborough, played by Anara Simone. She's the daughter of the mayor who's been in a wheelchair following an injury that was inflicted upon her by essentially the town drunk. She got shot and now has been left in a wheelchair. All these people in the community all attend the local church 
And they've had the local priest has been there for quite some time. Monsignor Pruitt, his name was, this ageing figure who's been a pillar of the community since time immemorial, who's recently been sent as a, like a thank you by the local community off to the Holy Land to go on a pilgrimage. Except while he's been out there, he's fallen ill. He's an old man, it's to be expected. And this young father, Paul Hill, comes in his place to take over the reins of the town so they have some kind of at least spiritual presence there while the Monsignor is recuperating back on the mainland. Even from the outset, there's something odd about Father Hill. The fact that he brings a very large box with him back to his house, or rather the Monsignor's house, with presumably his possessions in it, that just has a kind of a very ominous quality to it. Enormous coffin-like quality. I was trying to avoid that word. It just looks like a coffin, doesn't it? It really does. It does. It's the kind of thing that you would expect to be almost like a lead-lined coffin, that there's something really evil inside that thing. But yeah, he takes over the mass. There's a few little quirks, like I think Bev calls him out by saying, oh, you're wearing this particular colour vestment when it should be this colour for the sermon that you're giving. And I think, oh, you pedantic woman, just why bring this, this up? And of course he goes, oh, you caught me out. <laughs> Fair enough. But there's these little things that start mounting up that he does these odd little things. And it culminates in, again, skirting around certain things, a miracle happens, and it's the only way mm. to describe what actually happens. Oh. And it seems very much he is almost like the instrument of God on earth. And that's when I think probably talking about the specifics of the series should, prob yeah. should probably stop. Okay, that sounds pretty cool then. Oh, it is incredibly good. Yeah. Oh, I think I'm definitely going to put this on my list then. Oh, yeah, yeah, very <laughs> uh, much so. You're particularly saying the fact it's only seven episodes, it wraps up and, uh, you know, the episodes can be a bit long. They vary between 60 and 70 minutes. I can deal with that variation. I don't like it when they vary from like 20 minutes to two hours. This isn't Stranger Things. You don't need to worry about that. <laughs> right, good. But yeah, I mean, once you get to a certain point, there's a revelation that occurs probably about, I'd say, either a halfway or two thirds of the way through the series. Yeah, it's episode four or five, I think. Yeah. And then when you go into the last two episodes, it's outright balls to the wall horror. I mean, it yeah. really is horrific, particularly the penultimate episode. I don't think I've ever seen the series escalate like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the last episode is all about Fallout, and there's that idea of the ticking clock that you can tell there's definitely a moment that it's all building towards in terms of a particular time when stuff is going to happen. But it's that build-up to when the whole titular Midnight Mass happens. Yeah, that's horrific. I mean, really, really dark stuff that definitely stayed with me for a while. <laughs> mm. But at the same time, one of the things I really loved about Midnight Mass was that it doesn't just scare, that it's at the same time quite a, a thoughtful exploration of religious faith mm -hmm. and about what happens when you have your faith tested, what happens when you encounter the miraculous, that I think from a Call of Cthulhu point of view is, is quite interesting as well, because it is what happens when you encounter the impossible. But I think I liked it because... 
I'm not religious at all, but at the same time, it's nice to see a representation or at least a broad range of representations of religious faith in a program like that, in that you've got very agnostic or atheistic perspectives. You've got the perspectives of people of faiths other than the Catholic faith Mm -hmm. of the central characters. You've got doubters, you've got zealots. And just the way all of them experience religion through their own personal lenses in the face of what's happening is just something I've never seen handled that well in horror before. It's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, you've got, I think probably Hassan is probably the best of the religious Mm -hmm. characters in there. His devotion to the Muslim faith and one that he promotes in his son that goes back to the death of his wife and how she, I think she battled with cancer, was it? She had some kind of debilitating disease and it was her faith that kept her going through that. And likewise, it became very much a personal journey for him and that he's very much kept a hold of it because of the memory of his wife. And Mm -hmm. when his son decides, no, actually, Dad, I'm going to go join the Catholic Church in the island, Mm -hmm. that annoys him a great deal. It's like, no, you're not turning your back on your mother like this for just some passing fad. Again, it's just that lovely kind of personal moment that Mm -hmm. spilt that scene. And again, makes the last scene with him and his son, again, all that more poignant when they do ultimately what they do in the last scene. We've got a little bit of time left, so I would suggest we maybe go around and just make some quick comments on other things we've seen through the year. So Mm. first, Get Back by Peter Jackson, the film of the Beatles, and it's eight hours long in three episodes. For the most part, it's the members of the Beatles sat around in a, well, not a studio, it's it's a sort of big recording room, putting the album together and, and coming up with the tracks. I think for the first half hour, we were a bit like, is anything going to happen? What's kind of going on? And then as it went on, it was me and my wife and my daughter, Emily, watching it. And after a while, we just got totally sucked in and you couldn't turn it off. When it ended, we were like, well, I just kind of want more of it. It was just totally compelling. And it was just fascinating seeing their creativity and how they put the songs together. They were literally like just improvising like songs like Get Back and so on together. And there's a moment when... um, Paul McCartney sat on the piano, like composing Let It Be, one of the greatest tracks of all time. And this guy comes in like this, uh, I don't know, one of the producers or something comes in with a clipboard and just comes over and starts asking him questions. And you're like, no, what are you doing? Don't interrupt him. He's like writing Let It Be. It was just amazing to spend the time with the four of them and, and you know, the other people around the studio and the... And, and it sort of culminates in the concert on top of the, the rooftops in London, uh, I think in 1969. Yeah, it's just a fascinating documentary of the time. Like, could you get a bigger band? They're sat in the studio, like recording, you know, and, and everything. Or rehearsing, at least, not recording, rehearsing. You know what they've got to eat? What? They've got a couple of plates with a pile of toast <laughs> and a bowl of marmalade. that's what they've got it was the late 60s that's what they had they were performing a ritual to summon Paddington Bear it might as well have been it's just like it's just the little things like that that inadvertently come out of the time Paul McCartney really stands out in it just his creativity and his drive he's just constantly like pushing it forward One that had been on my list, I mean, this isn't a new series by any means, but it has been on my list finish for years, 
it was finally when I got out of hospital earlier in the year that I couldn't really move around for a good while. So I was laid up in bed in our bedroom, staring at the TV, thinking, is this anywhere on streaming? And I had a quick look and found, yes, it's all on Amazon Prime. So I managed to binge through because it had been... I remember I got to like the end of season four, but thought I can barely remember any of the plot points that got me to here. So I'm going to start at the beginning. And I watched all seven seasons of The Mentalist back to back. Oh, okay. I love that show. That was so, so good. It rings a bell. Is that a British production or is that an American thing? What is it? It's American. The premise of it is that you have, well, the titular mentalist. He was a TV psychic at one point, but he was pretty much just a con artist up until that point. Right. He was a psychic reader. In Cthulhu terms, he has Psychology 99. (laughs) He is the person that can read everyone and manipulate them in the best possible way to get the outcome he wants. So he will play on their emotions. He will play on their wants and desires. And he ultimately pokes a bear that he really shouldn't have done. He gets called onto a TV show, like a talk show documentary thing, to discuss aspects of a serial killer that's active in California called Red John. And he starts spouting off going, oh, this guy is probably deficient in X, Y, or Z, and kind of poking the bear, calling this guy out and calling him some kind of failure or some kind of misfit. So Red John kills his family, kills his wife, kills his daughter, and leaves them in quite a horrific position for them to be found when he gets home. Patrick Jane's the character's name. It's Jane's journey from that point on, recovering from the psychological trauma of that happening to him, and teaming up with the CBI, the California Bureau of Investigation, to ultimately track down this killer and bring him to a very vigilante kind of justice is what he's always signposted from the beginning saying that if i catch this guy i'm gonna kill him and the series basically plays out from there there's elements every so often you get one of these meta plot episodes of oh he gets one more lead on the road to get him close to red john but otherwise it's a kind of procedural aspect of the week but there's a lot of comedy woven in there because jane is very much a fool type character he is very much a troublemaker but he's a lovable rogue at the same time Again, great cast of central characters in the whole thing. And yeah, I, I loved it. It was a great run. I just think that when they ultimately did get Red John, that's when the series should have stopped. They shouldn't have carried it on for a season and a half after that. Right. One that I think went under a lot of people's radar, which I watched, I think, last month or the month before, is a program on Amazon Prime that I I thought was a miniseries, a limited series. I thought it was self-contained, but apparently they're continuing the story. And it's a program called The Devil's Hour. Hmm. Oh, I absolutely love this. It presents itself initially as, uh, I guess, a, a fairly grounded thriller. There are weird elements from the outset, but nothing completely inexplicable or nothing overtly supernatural. And it follows a social worker who has this this recurring thing where she wakes up every night at 3.33 a.m. and uh, has this sense sometimes that things are wrong. She sees things that aren't quite there. She's got a son who appears to be highly neurodivergent, who has conversations constantly with people who aren't around there and seems to be completely affectless and very strange. Then she gets drawn into this murder investigation because there is 
the serial killer who's been operating for some time, targeting generally fairly uh, unpleasant people. The detective hunting him down finds his lair or whatever you'd call it and finds the woman's name written up there and amongst all the other little bits and pieces that he's he's got that the serial killers put up there to try to obviously pick his next victims the more you learn about what's going on and the more you learn about the ties between them and why the sun is the way he is it turns into this really weird cosmology behind it all that's somewhere between unknown armies and cult and it just gets more and more horrific and goes to a really fucking dark ending i did not think that they'd end it the way they did but jesus it's got a great cast the sort of sinister serial killer character and is played by peter capaldi who is absolutely amazing in it even though he's he's hardly in it he's more of a background figure it's also all told out of sequence it starts off with his interrogation and him calling for the social worker to come and become part of the interrogation because he has stuff to tell her again you learn why as the series goes on and the revelations again are really quite fucked up and weird it's the kind of thing that i'm really surprised to see on television not just because it goes to such dark places at times and it really does but because it's the kind of weird imaginative thing that isn't really rooted in any other properties and it is very much its own thing and it's the kind of mind-bending television that I don't really think I've seen come out of British TV since the 1970s. Hmm. I might have to give that another try then, because admittedly, I've seen bits of it. Tiff watched it. She binged through it pretty quick. But being me, I don't have the time to normally sit down and watch much things these days now I'm back in work. So I've only caught bits of episodes here and there, but caught on that there is definitely a kind of weird vibe to it. But the advertising for it that I kept getting bombarded with on Amazon Prime when it first got released turned me off it quite quickly with a very mm. cheesy line that was when apparently someone is asking this uh, Peter Capaldi character some question he replies with I have more of an intrinsic connection with time than you can understand and I'm thinking from the guy that played Doctor Who this sounds <laughs> like it's some kind of fucking parody that immediately turned me off it no 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 that that pays off very nicely and I don't want to spoil it but no that is not as cheesy as it ends up sounding no if I were to find fault with it, I'd say that it does feel slightly overlong. They could, probably could have tightened up two of the episodes and brought it in a bit more, but that's a slight complaint. It certainly doesn't ruin it by any means. Like I say, one of the most original things I've seen on television for a long time. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. First of all, thank you to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us. And we have a number of new people to thank personally by name. Starting off with a thanks to Marco Goebel. And thank you much to Oliver Steins Gunderson. And thank you very much to Jan Wouters Schauflieger. 
And thanks to Antonia Toma. I love the single names here. And thank you very much to Grendelbly. And thank you to John. And thanks to Russell in the Woods. And also thank you very much to Zion J. And thank you to Tom Setford, a.k.a. Lord Tigger. And thanks to Dr. Bones. And thank you very much again to John. But a different spelling this time. This is John without an H. We had John with an H before, now we have John without an H. And thank you very much to Franz Schmutzer. And thanks to Brockett Carroll. And thank you much to Joe Terry. And finally, thank you to Stephen Anderson. Now, you may be thinking it's a new year. Well, it's spring. You, know, you want to be thinking about your wardrobe come summer. <laughs> well, if you head on over to BlasphemousTomes.com and click on our merchandise link, you'll find we have an array of T-shirts, all manner of things from shower curtains to bedspreads. <laughs> Basically, you know, Redbubble, you put the design in and you can get anything as sanity blasting as, I don't know. Tell me that our punters can buy posing pouches with our faces on them. <laughs> I'm trying to encourage them to go there, not put them off. Christ. That ain't on Redbubble's normal list of products, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's on the special Red, sites. Redbubble after dark. <laughs> and if you are enjoying the podcast, please do let people know. We'd love it if you'd left us a review somewhere where reviews can be found or told like-minded people about us on social media. Anything to get the good word of Jackson Elias out there to delicate little ears. Well, plant those seeds where they can grow in brain meats into beautiful thoughts of, well, Jackson. Well, that wraps up another show. You've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Blasphemous tomes.com mm-hmm.